1: My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, LeonGetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2023. And today's date is Friday, June the 2nd. First, I'll be talking to Jim Penman, the founder of the franchising company Jim's Group, which has had a strong growth over the last two years. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel about house prices.
3: But now let's talk
2: to Jim Penman.
3: Jim, you've had 100% increases uh, in inquiries of people wanting to join the Jim's Franchise Group uh, since COVID. Tell us about that.
4: Well, there's quite a lot of demand. To be honest, I'm not exactly quite sure why. We, we just have more and more interest. I think our profiles increased a lot during COVID, but there's a demand out there. I, look, they, they call it the great resignation. That's one thing that may be contributing to it. A lot of people are leaving their jobs. They're looking at what they're doing and they're saying, why do I commute an hour into the city? And, and then they think, what what alternatives are there? So the, a lot of people are leaving jobs and looking for something better because it's just been very, very busy and, and lots lots of interest in franchises. And, and we're very appreciative of it. Obviously, we're trying very hard to do better, to reach out to people, to use social media, to use all kinds of methods to communicate. But The response has been been great. I mean, in a a sense, it's been surprising because a lot of Jim's franchisees are new immigrants. I'd love to know exactly what's happening, but we we hope it continues. When you've got a business, whether it's cleaning or gardening or whatever it is, or pest control, you are actually working from home. You you, you drive out the front door and you're at work. And with our system we actually localize jobs we have a territory which is ideally where you live and that's where you get of first refusal and then you choose outlying areas depending how much work you want so the busier you get the the more you can be more selective and you can take closer and closer so the the aim of the system is to reduce traveling to an extreme degree so you know somebody might be spending their whole day working within 10-15 minutes drive of their of their house so it's very little commuting and one thing people a lot of the studies have found is that People really hate commuting more than anything. They reckon that somebody on seventy-five thousand dollars a year who's working basically from home or close by has the same level of satisfaction as somebody making one hundred and fifty with an hour-long commute, which sounds astonishing. But that's actually what the what the research shows.
3: So you have fifty-two divisions now. I know you have mowing, you have
4: cleaning. What other divisions do you have? It depends how you how you classify a division, but the bigger ones would be. Uh, after, after cleaning is a lot of things. Cleaning is carpet cleaning, window cleaning, line cleaning, car cleaning, all of which are doing quite well, especially car cleaning. Then you've got test, uh, test and tag, which is just past 200 franchisees. That's, that's a useful one. That's just testing electrical requirements and so forth. Dog wash is really, really doing well. That's booming like mad. That'll have 200 surely um, early next year. Pool care has been very successful. Fencing, Jeepers, we could do with more fences. We just cannot find enough fences, even though it's a, it's a great income. We just can't find them. Handyman, pest control, security doors, IT, bookkeeping. <laughs> I could just keep on going. I don't know if I could. Look, I don't know if I could remember them all at one go. I can look them up, but there's quite a few. And 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 we're starting new ones. We're just starting to launch um, driving school. We just had some really good response so far. Mother mechanic is going quite well. It's just a new one, but it's it's, it's going pretty well. They're getting plenty of work. So lo- lots of lots of divisions around.
3: How do people make the transition to becoming their own
4: boss well it's a, it's not that difficult in Australia because Australians like New Zealanders too we're, we're a fairly egalitarian type of people so like if you were in Texas and you said you're leaving some corporate desk job to go and become start a lawn mowing business people would say oh come on you know you're going to work with your hands well that's Max- Mexicans and blacks that's for the lesser breeds type of thing I mean they really have that kind of attitude but in Australia if you if you're a manager and you come out and you want to run your own business oh isn't that great I've always thought of being self-employed so this idea of independence is very Australian and and Actually, you'd be surprised who does it. We've got a lot of people with those of with very, very good backgrounds, like corporate backgrounds and so forth. Well, I lunched yesterday with one of my franchisees who was one of the managers at McDonald's and loves McDonald's. He's a real fan of the company. He says he turned over you know, just under a million dollars last year, and is like third year in the business. So he he says it's just no comparison financially. But he, it, by the way, he doesn't even actually mow lawns anymore. He's got he's got teams on the ground, and he's just bought a regional. We've got a regional franchise, so the opportunities are quite extraordinary. And we find that people with that kind of background tend to do very very well.
3: So if someone can actually set up or enter into a gym franchise, whether it's say mowing or fencing or whatever, but they can actually employ others to work in that. Is that right? Yes.
4: Yeah. Well, we encourage it actually. I, I would think most of our people have workers at least at some certain times. Some that have very big businesses. Our top ones are turning over in the millions. The system is kind of designed to make it attractive because most of our fees are a fixed fee and we charge a small fee for every lead provided. But it doesn't matter how many workers you have. It doesn't matter what your turnover is. We don't count. We don't even, we don't even know. I mean, unless they tell us, of course. So if, if you're actually very successful and you can take on workers, you can actually be turning over a vast sum of money and your fees could be, you know, $800 a month. It's, it's almost trivial at that level. so And we encourage it. So it doesn't matter how many trailers, how many vans, how many employees, you can you can just make whatever you want. And because there's this incredible oversupply of work, you know, like well, in this last 12 months, we've knocked back 36% of all leads and divisions like fencing and mowing and those that just got so much leads that you can build any size business you want. The biggest problem actually, Leon, is not, it's not the work, it's, it's just finding enough of the good people. Like this guy, actually one of the things he did is he actually recruited people he knew from McDonald's, uh, often people in management struggles there. He knew they were great, had great work ethic, and they were well trained. So he actually tempted them away to join his business as employees. He's got fantastic people. What sort of business was it? This is a lawnmowing business. And what's what's striking about about Dan, too, is that he's um, not only got his great business turning over his huge amount of money, but he's actually got one of our best customer service rating. He's got a 4.8 star rating out of potential five, which is really, really good. The average is about 4.6. So he's actually not only running a great business, a very profitable business, but he's also giving great customer service. And he's actually acting as a trainer. trainer. Other people do the same thing. So in
3: effect, your franchise model is actually encouraging people to reinvent themselves.
4: Oh, yes. Definitely. I mean, look at that was the original idea in the beginning. My idea was that you would start a business and you would actually build it, because that's kind of like my mentality. In practice, most people tend to go for lifestyle. They tend to say, well, look, I'm happy to wait you know, I'm, I'm 120,000 a year is all I need, for example, but I want to see my kids growing up. That, that's probably the main way they look at it. So one guy in I was just speaking to, I, I I ring people when they reach anniversary, like 10 years, 15 years. One guy I was speaking to recently in Queensland, he's making quite reasonable money from his point of view, but he in only, he stops work at one o'clock in the afternoon. And he works Monday to Thursday. So he only works four days a week, and not even in the afternoons, because it's, it's Queensland's too hot in the afternoon. doesn't want to work that way. But, see, he could become a lot wealthier, but to him, lifestyle and time with his family and, and time for other pursuits is, is more important.
3: Now, in terms of the fee, it's, uh, you, you mentioned $800. Is that $800 a month? Is that roughly what they would pay?
4: Yeah, well, it, can, it can vary, but it's usually about that $750, 800 Some, some divisions like uh, skip bins or antennas pay more because they get a huge number of leads, but those are very high. The typical franchisee in those they make hundreds of thousands a year, especially uh, skip bins. But they need a lot of leads, so the fees tend to be a higher cost of the lead fees. So,
3: so what are the most popular franchises?
4: Most popular? Yeah. Mowing, obviously, Mowing. Mowing has more trainees than any other division. But then again, it's so large because the attrition rate becomes a, a problem. So we're still growing. We've had a great year. We've grown about net of about 50 franchisees in, in Mowing in the last six months. So it's it's, gr- it's rising fast. But proportionally speaking, it's not it's not the fastest growing. Probably something like uh, dogwash would be at the moment. But that's been very popular. We've got an amazing lady, Sharon Connell in in charge of that she actually started as a cleaning franchisee and uh got <laughs> funny thing about it she, she wasn't even and this is an example of the attitude too she was a hospital administrator and she thought of becoming a cleaning franchisee and then she thought but you know that's a bit downgrade from where i am it's not not quite on the same level and then she got hold a copy of my book every customer a fan and i always say that that book alone would justify every cent we ever spent on, on publishing that book. And she looked at it and said, I like this values. I like the, the principles behind it. So she bought a franchise, was successful, bought a regional franchise, became incredibly great. She sold a million dollars worth of franchises in a year. And then I came to her head her I said, Listen, Sharon, I want I want I want to give you the dog wash division, which had about sixty franchisees in those days. And and all I need is a you know guarantee of a certain amount of payment back. So no money up front at all. And so she's she's taken that over and she's been amazingly successful. So it's kind of like the opportunity is quite astonishing. She started off you know, buying one cleaning franchise, but because she was capable, she's done well. Another one of my who runs the cleaning division. He's, um, he started off, when he came to us, he was actually a cleaner. He, he, his past job, he had done various things, but he was actually a cleaner, cleaning floors, cleaning toilets, that kind of thing. And he bought a franchise and bought a regional franchise, took over the division, has been phenomenally successful. He's, he's got a car, around $50,000 in a house, which is a third of an acre. The house, not, not the garden. He's, he's, he's just rich. And, he, and every year he goes off to his villa in Cyprus and spends a few weeks there. He's, he's, he's making a fortune. And this is the guy who was cleaning houses only a decade ago. And, so. and, and final question,
3: what new areas are you planning to expand the business into?
4: Well, the biggest thing is that into training. That's our big plan. We've just purchased a registered training organisation in weeks setting up all courses in all kinds of areas everything from handyman horticulture pest control conveyancing entrepreneurialism or everything so we're going to actually that's that's our a big new venture and we well actually we think it's a way of recruiting potential franchisees because once we can show people how the job's done and teach them how to do it and we've got an incredible offer because you see we can take somebody who's like who doesn't got it's not a fencer we, we we take their money we which hopefully the government will pay for down the track a bit too but we teach them to be a fencer and we'll teach them from somebody who's a really successful fencer and we'll teach them entrepreneurial ability how to find work how to look after customers what to charge all the things you won't learn in a tape or anywhere else and at the end of it they've got all kinds of options first of all if they're good obviously if they're not there's no no hope for them but if they're not we've got 1,400, 140 franchisees who are desperate for trained workers. So there's here's a job, here's a job, here's a job. Or we can we can help them go into their own business and even give them some of our surplus leads that we can't handle. Or they can have a franchise at a very, very good rate, maybe even give it to them, who knows.
3: Well, Jim, that's fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Yeah, You're welcome.
2: And now let's talk to RMIT economist, Jonathan Boymore.
3: Well, Jonathan, what's your view about property prices? So the... RBA was basically saying that immigration is going to raise property prices. What's your view about it?
0: Yeah, well, I think the the Australian housing market is starting to defy earlier expectations. Despite eleven uh, interest rate increases from the RBA, property prices, in fact, in about a, a third of suburbs across Australia, um, have not only stopped falling but they're they're on the rise. And We've seen a you know nine percent drop in house prices peaked peak to trough, certainly less than what people were um, were expecting. And, and as you said, you know now things seem to be now things seem to be changing. It does look like the property markets have, have bottomed down and we're moving into, to another phase of the of the property cycle. We are seeing some you know strength in the in the housing market. We know housing prices are, are driven by many factors immigration as you suggest so not not just interest rates so consumer confidence we know is important you know and fundamentals of supply supply and demand demand for housing is is booming at the moment driven by the the surge in in migration and certainly you take a look at migration levels last year right compared to to 2021 you know a massive a massive jump and it's it's estimated that in the next couple of years we're going to have to find, housing for an extra half million half million people. So yeah, some of those fundamentals are really gonna to continue to drive the property market.
3: Uh, this is felt not only across the cities but also in regional Australia. Isn't
0: it? Yeah, that's that's correct. Look, we are dealing with a fragmented property market. So there are obviously some sort of regional and, and local factors that are driving that are driving sub markets. But we are seeing consistent Impacts the fundamentals across uh, across regions. You know, so for example, decline in the household size. We've seen that since uh, since the beginning of 2020. So there's an increase in demand for housing. Uh, low rental vacancy rates is something that we're seeing across the across the board. Uh, particularly particularly impacting capital city uh, rental vacancy rates. Um, but I was speaking to a colleague earlier today about um, the housing market in in Rockhampton and again very very tight right very tight in in Rockhampton in terms of in terms of vacancies Um, low listings low property listings across the board in Australia again which will contribute to a rise in property prices and auction clearance rates across the board um, have improved from their from their lows so absolutely it's not not just the not just the capital not just the capital cities
3: it's quite striking because uh, last year there was lots of talk of property prices crashing.
0: That's right. That's right. So, again, it has really defied uh, defined expectations, you know, a peaked trough of, of 9%. Uh, probably, you know, that's that's bottomed out. So it's unlikely that, that we are going to see those sort, of, those sort of price falls that people were predicting, you know, 12 months ago. We know uh, that rising household debt servicing payments is an issue. Um, these payments have already reached their highest levels in in over a, a decade. We mm-hmm. may see further rate hikes. But to be honest we've we've really passed over that fixed rate mortgage cliff, right? Most people are now on variable rates. Um, so I don't think we're going to see a, a massive hit in terms of you know a very, very large number of households now jumping you know jumping over that that proverbial that proverbial cliff. As is a feature in Australia, um, most people are now on, on variable rates, um, and I don't think that that shift is going to make a make a massive difference um, in the next in the next few months. It'll have an impact, but not enough to to sort of meet those expectations that we were talking about 12, 12 months ago.
3: This is interesting because uh, the rise in property prices, and I'm assuming also construction costs and everything like that that's going to drive up inflation
0: oh look absolutely um you know something that we haven't talked about obviously is the wage increases so you know public sector wage increases um, we're likely to see they' there in the pipeline other other decisions on on wages um, we know as you correctly pointed out that you know cost of construction are going up right we've got timber now flowing into flowing into China so that'll that'll put push price prices of, uh, of, of timber up so, absolutely, this is likely to to have an impact on, on inflation in Australia. So, we've got you know persistently high inflation, although coming off the boil, perhaps from, from what we saw in, in December. Labor markets are still very tight. Um, so, that's obviously given the RBA room to, to raise the cash rate over the last few months, right, in order to meet credibility around their two to three percent um, inflation target. Uh, but you know, inf- inflation remains well elevated above that two to three percent range that that target range we're seeing strong inflation in, in the services sector and again yeah wages wages are a real a real concern, real concern but again it's not just interest rates that are going to you know be influencing those those housing prices there are some other sort of fundamental fundamental factors on the demand side which will impact as well
3: but the reality is uh with inflation at seven percent the only way the RBA can actually get it down to two, three percent is uh, persistently um, raising interest rates. I mean that's just the reality of all central banks.
0: Yeah, sure. Look, I think the RBA will be looking for the the full impact of previous rate rises to to show themselves. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a possibility of further rate rises down down the track. You know, there is a potential for for further further tightening. But again, what's surprising is the housing market is showing resilience, yeah, even, even, in, even in this environment.
3: But uh, even when people are paying more than uh, what they'd originally got into, you don't expect too many defaults?
0: Well, no. I mean, what the RBA is talking about is the very high proportion of households that have a buffer, that have a savings buffer. We are expecting to see um, probably some loosening of monetary policy. Right within within twelve months. So the question is, is there an adequate buffer for people to maintain payment, mortgage payments, without having to cut consumption? Um, and the answer is yes. There probably there probably is um, for a number for a number of months until we see a change, a move into a new new interest rate cycle where monetary policy is is somewhat eased
3: although the budget was talking about inflation coming down in 2025, so in two years from now. So they expect the RBA to keep raising rates for the next 24 months, conceivably.
0: Well, we'd have to... The RBA would want to be sure that the full impact of previous rate rises had actually fed through through the, the system. You know, if we see savings rates falling as people are eating into eating into their savings that will have an impact on future consumption so the rba wants to make sure that they've
1: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Got the timing right, right? Because we know that monetary policy works with, works with lags. So they don't want to drive interest rates up too high now and then see cash strapped um, households cutting back on consumption in 12 months, when actually the RBA, or 24 months, when the RBA may actually be wanting to to loosen um, monetary policy.
3: But uh, and because of that lag, we just don't know how long it's going to, what impact it's going to have long term.
0: No, no. But we do know that there's a buffer. We do know that households are eating into that buffer, um, but that's likely to have an impact on on consumption in consumption in the future. Because people do tend to smooth out, right, their consumption over over time. So if they um, are trying to maintain their consumption now, but they're eating into their eating into their savings buffer, it may be the case that we'll see a drop off in consumption in the you know in the next twelve months.
3: Oh, well, that's regardless of the um, what, what you'd call the wealth effect with rising property prices.
0: Correct. Correct. Uh, it would be interesting to see. What's happening to to real wealth given in given inflation? But yeah, uh, you know, there, there's obviously there's obviously the risk of of um, an adverse impact on consumption expenditure and falling house prices. But I think you know we've moved beyond that. I, I would say that we're in a stabilisation phase. If you had to st- you know sum it up Australia wide, um, you know, a third of suburbs, according to CoreLogic's data, um, have shown increasing in housing prices in the last couple of months. But, you know, Australia-wide, I think we are moving into that sort of stabilisation stabilisation phase. Um, so we may not be seeing any significant real wealth effects impacting consumption, impacting spending.
3: And that's right across not only cities, but across regional Australia as well.
0: That's right. That's correct.
3: Even as far as places like Rockhampton.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, not easy if you're uh, thinking about moving into state you know, getting a new gig in, in Rockhampton and having to find having to find accommodation. Right. It's, t- it's tough there as well.
3: Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for your time.
0: Leon, always a pleasure. So what's
2: happening in the news? Well, the world's most valuable chipmaker, NVIDIA, has unveiled more AI products. NVIDIA Corp. Chief Executive Officer, Jensen Wang, has unveiled a new batch of products and services tied to artificial intelligence looking to capitalise on a frenzy that has made his company the world's most valuable chipmaker. He hailed a new era of computer in which everyone is a programmer, as the world's most valuable semiconductor group unveiled a new supercomputer platform to stay at the forefront of the artificial intelligence revolution. The wide ranging lineup includes a new robotics design, gaming capabilities, advertising services, and a networking technology. Perhaps most central to his ambitions, Wang took the wraps off an AI supercomputer platform called DGX GH two hundred. ...that will help tech companies create successes to ChatGPT. Microsoft Core, Meta Platforms Inc. and Alphabet Inc.'s Google are expected to be among the first users. The flurry of announcements underscores NVIDIA's shift from a maker of computer graphics chips to a company at the centre of the AI boom. Last week, Wayne gave a stunning sales forecast for the current quarter, almost $4 billion above analysts' estimates... fueled by demand for data centre chips that handle AI tasks... In the presentation on Monday, Wang argued the traditional architecture of the tech industry is no longer improving fast enough to keep up with complex computing tasks. To realise the full potential of AI, customers are increasingly turning to accelerated computing and graphics processing units, or GPUs, like those made by NVIDIA. An economist, Ross Garno, says rising unemployment is a bigger concern than a recession and he's called for the Reserve Bank to pause its run of 11 interest rate rises in the past year he also accused the RBA of making one very big mistake that hurt Australians when it held interest rates higher than other developed countries between 2013 and 2019. Garneau told the University of Melbourne panel that the central bank created unnecessarily high unemployment and weak wages growth last decade by keeping the official rate higher than in similar countries and he urged it to work more closely with the federal government including conducting joint research. He said Australia's historically high rates of immigration made it hard to have recessions But the RBA should wait to assess how lifting rates to an 11-year high had affected the economy. The Reserve Bank is under fire for promising in 2020 not to lift rates for three years and then raising them at the fastest pace in recent history. A recent review recommended 51 changes to the Reserve Bank, including post-meeting press conferences by its Governor, fewer meetings and an increased focus on economic research. the strength of the Qantas brand has been dented by high airfares, negative publicity and performance issues, according to new analysis of the world's top airlines. The brand finance report examined the economic credentials and marketing power of major airlines, along with consumer sentiment and media coverage. Japan's All Nippon Airways was rated the world's strongest brand, followed by Korean Air, with Singapore Airlines 5th and Japan Airlines 6th. Qantas slipped out of the top five for the first time since 2018, coming in at number 7. Brand Finance Australian Managing Director Mark Crowe said a checklist of factors was taken into account under the headings of investment in the brand, the equity, the brand held and brand performance. Qantas scored a total of 78.1, down from 82.4 last year and a high of 86.6 in 2019. Qantas has seen a drop in ratings for value for money and innovation And then under brand equity, they've had a fall in recommendation and reputation. Finally, under performance, they've also experienced a drop in loyalty, which is perhaps not surprising given there's been a lot of negative publicity around Qantas and customer service. Brand was considered particularly valuable in the airline industry, accounting for everything from 18 to 25% of overall enterprise value, Crowe said. And the Victorian government has signed off on a preferred development plan for its $3.3 billion electricity transmission project. VNI West, a centrepiece of the state's push to shift the power grid away from coal and reach a 95% renewables target by 2013. After kicking off the regulatory process in 2019, the Australian energy market operator has struck a deal for the transmission line that connects the Energy Connect line now being built in New South Wales with Victoria's Western Renewables Link. The development allows for up to 3,400 megawatts of energy extra renewable generation to be built across the solar-rich Murray River Renewable Energy Zone and the wind-power-driven Western Victoria Zone. The Andrews Government has approved a ministerial order backing AEMO's preferred option, which connects VNI West to the Planned Western Renewables Link at a terminal station in Bulgana in Victoria's west. It then links to a terminal station near Kerrang in north-central Victoria before crossing the Murray River north of Kerrang. Planning and environmental approvals will still be required, however, with the state saying community input would play a crucial role in helping design a route that minimises impacts on the landholders, the environment and farming operations. And Australians have enthusiastically embraced champagne since the end of lockdowns and COVID-19 restrictions, propelling the nation to become the sixth largest champagne market in the world. A record 10.5 million bottles of French bubble shipped to Australia in 2022, up 6%, with Australian consumers becoming more educated and increasingly willingly to spend more when filling a flute. Latest figures from Comite Champagne, the regulatory body that represents the houses, growers, and cooperatives of the champagne Appalachian in France, showed the value of the Australian champagne market increase by seventeen point seven percent for the year, representing a turnover of one hundred and eight million euro, that's three hundred and ten million Aussie. And despite only a small population relative to some of the other giant champagne drinkers, Australia now ranks as the sixth biggest champagne export market and is closing in on much larger nations such as Japan, Germany and Belgium, which rank third, fourth and fifth respectively. It is the first time Australia has ranked sixth by volume as well as value in terms of champagne shipments, underlying that shift to higher priced champagne brands by local drinkers. And business will seek to limit the Albanese government's gig worker laws to minimum pay, opposing powers to mandate conditions such as portable leave and rest breaks on grounds they threaten to increase costs and push up prices of consumers. The Business Council of Australia, which is expected to campaign against the government's second tranche of industrial relations changes in the coming months, in a submission, lashed the proposed gig economy laws as threatening to restrict wages, rostering and the ability for gig workers to easily move between platforms. The government is proposing to introduce powers for the Fair Work Commission to set minimum pay and conditions for employee-like workers with a focus on gig platforms such as Uber and DoorDash. But BCA Chief Executive Jennifer Westercott said the reforms as currently framed fail to recognise the importance of flexibility these roles offer both to the worker and the community. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke said the government wanted to maintain the flexibility for platform workers in picking when they work and what work they took on, but without undercutting minimum pay. And many among the 900 strong partnership fear, fear PwC is descending into a civil war that could take years to recover from. The leak scandal, which involved then PwC tax partner Peter Collins sharing confidential government information that was used to advise clients how to sidestep new tax laws, has led to a level of bewilderment, fury, and sadness throughout the firm. Those emotions are being increasingly directed at the firm's new executive board, which many feel is taking an overly legalistic and slow approach to the crisis. So far, the main personnel action taken by the leadership is to announce that former CEO Tom Seymour will leave the firm early and that two other partners have stepped down from leadership positions. Some of the firm's 900-strong partnerships, always a hyper-political body, fear the firm is descending into a civil war that could take years to recover from. One former partner, now at a rival, rival Big Four firm, divides PwC partners into three groups. There's a lot of unsatisfied people, he said. Junior partners are worried about the financial consequences. The mid-career ones are looking to jump and the senior partners think they can ride it out. They've had good years. The former partner also said a group of government partners was shopping themselves around to other firms. A similar tactic was attempted in mid-2020 by 11 partners from PwC but was stymied in part by concern about whether the partners of their new firm could, would bear the cost if PwC took legal action against them based on a clause in their partnership deed covering group departures. Potential partners are also hesitant to tie their financial future to PwC, a career step previously considered one of the pinnacles in the professional services sector. A lot of candidates have balked at becoming partners, the former partner said. Underfire accounting and consulting firm PwC has directed nine of its partners to take leave pending the outcome of an internal investigation into the leaking of the confidential Australian government tax information. The firm also announced that the Chairs of the Governance Board and Designated Risk Committee are stepping down, with two independent non-executive directors to be appointed to the Governance Board. PwC will also ring-fence its provision of services to the Federal Government with a Standalone Executive and Governance Board to oversee those operations from, from September onwards. In addition, the firm has now committed to publishing in full an internal report being conducted by Ziggy Sutkowski for PwC when it is completed in September Previously, the firm was planning only to publish a summary of the report and its recommendations, but it changed its mind after listening to stakeholders. And Australia's tax office foiled several attempts by multinational firms to subvert new tax avoidance laws months after confidential drafts were leaked by then PricewaterhouseCoopers partner, a spokesperson told a parliamentary committee hearing on Tuesday. The Big Four firm is reeling after a former tax partner who was consulting with the government on laws cracking down on corporate tax avoidance, shared confidential drafts with colleagues to drum up business around the world. Shortly after the introduction of the multinational anti-avoidance law in 2016, the tax office noticed several multinationals suspiciously and quickly restructuring their affairs, Australian Tax Office Commissioner Chris Jordan told Senators on Tuesday. The unnamed firms ultimately readjusted their structures after the ATO issued notices, saving the taxpayer roughly $180 million annually, said Jordan. Mrs Jordan also detailed how the tax office shared information with federal police in 2018 about PwC partner Peter Collins leaking confidential treasury documents. And online doctors will be banned from prescribing drugs to patients they have never spoken to under a crackdown aimed at preventing Australians from accessing medicine with a click of a button. It comes as, as Medical Board of Australia Chair Dr Anne Tonkin warned that it was only a matter of time before someone died or suffered serious harm from the tick and flick prescribing practices of telehealth platforms. The Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency is currently investigating telehealth companies for failing to recognise adverse drug reactions, prescribing medication patients are allergic to, and dispensing pain medication for extended periods without face-to-face reviews. The Medical Board of Australia will release new rules for telehealth companies this week, that will deliver a significant blow to the business model of many startups selling and prescribing drugs online. Those companies often prescribe drugs through online questionnaires without patients ever having a real-time consultation with a doctor. Telehealth has exploded in popularity since the pandemic, and so too have patients' grievances. New data shows a medical watchdog has received more than 503 complaints about the industry so far this financial year. This represents a more than 400% jump in complaints since 2019-20. Almost one in six of these related to prescribing issues, while others related to cost, incorrect or misdiagnoses and delays in care. Tonkin, who is a specialist in clinical pharmacology, said the watchdog had received complaints about people being prescribed Valium without any questions being asked about their medical history or why they needed the drug. And nursing home providers have backed a new Albanese government consultation paper that floats making elderly Australians pay more from their own pocket for aged care as part of efforts to relieve pressure on taxpayers. The draft National Care and Support Economy Strategy also warns that higher wages for carers working in the age, disability, veterans and early childhood sectors can only be achieved through productivity gains to avoid driving up costs of services further. The release of a discussion paper comes weeks after the Albanese government agreed to fund a 15% increase in wages for aged care workers at a cost of the budget of $11.3 billion over four years. The United Workers' Union flagged last week a plan to launch a pay claim for a 25% increase for childcare workers, following the introduction of multi-employer bargaining laws. Forecasting that annual government spending on the care sectors will almost double, from $60 billion in 2021 to 2022, to more than $110 billion by 2026-27, the paper said the sectors face the same challenges from workforce shortages, growing demand and budgetary pressures. To ensure long-term financial sustainability and intergenerational fairness, the paper said there needs to be a broader national conversation about public expectations on the services government funds and provides, as well as a split in contributions between governments and individuals. This includes whether governments should fund a universal minimum standard of care and support but allow people to buy a higher level of care if they wanted to, or whether Australians are willing to wear higher taxes or a reduction in public services if they want governments to fund high level or care. And nearly three quarters of renters have experienced rent hikes over the last year. It increases that have become larger and more common than before the pandemic. But as more households struggle to manage growing rental prices, separate forecasts suggest the worst is yet to come, and rental inflation could rise to 8% by Early next year. Rental inflation reached 4.9% in March, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics Consumer Price Index, and the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has warned rising rents added to the ongoing danger of high inflation. Financial services firm JP Morgan believes rental price growth could accelerate as the uptick in migration and smaller household sizes continues to put pressure on rental demand. While higher interest rates and slower construction mean that increase in supply remains sluggish. The firm's modelling forecasts annual rental inflation will increase to 6% by September and reach 8% by March next year. And Australia could have built an extra 1.3 million homes over the past 20 years, but costly zoning, planning, building, and red tape imposed by local councils is chiefly to blame for a huge housing undersupply, according to analysis by former Reserve Bank of Australia economist Tony Richards. In new research, Dr Richards said building more medium-intensity homes may require taking powers off local councils to stop caving into NIMBY, not in my backyard, agitators. Dr Richards said the federal government's target for 1 million new homes over five years was not that ambitious and a much bigger expansion was required to make up for past undersupply and future population growth. Home building has slowed significantly over the past two decades, largely due to prime residential real estate being restricted to single homes. Developers facing long and expensive applications... And legal disputes with existing residents. The report, The Case for Medium Density Housing in Our Large Cities, calculates that housing supplies expanded at just 4.5% ahead of population growth over the 20 years to 2021, much slower than the 17% above the population increase in the previous 20 years. Maintaining the earlier pace, Would have increased the housing stock by 220,000 homes a year instead of the actual growth of 153,000 a year. The slower building of homes implies a 20 year shortfall of 383,107 homes in New South Wales, 352,292 in Queensland, 282,694 in Victoria, 160,397 in Western Australia. 102,321 in South Australia, 34,146 in Tasmania, 14,385 in Canberra and 8,504 in the Northern Territory. And the ACTU wants the Albanese government's upcoming same-job, same-pay laws to target major companies such as CIMIC, Qube, BHP and Qantas for using labour hire-like structures to push down pay. The union peak body named the construction stevedore mining and airline giants in research released on Tuesday that found Australia's largest dozen labour-hire providers now ranked in the country's top 30 largest commercial employers with combined revenues of about $20 billion. The research says labour-hire extends to complex, multi-tiered, opaque structures and many large listed corporates such as BHP, Qantas, Qube and Simic have also established their own internal labour-hire subsidiaries that suppress wages. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dr. Sylvia Pfeiffer, CEO and co-founder of Coview, Australia's leading video telehealth solution, and a spin-out of CSIRO's Data61. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruyan examining whether governments have actually created feel-good budgets. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, Subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50